Hello, thank you for joining us today. You know, it takes a, a near act of God for someone to stand back and view themselves and their culture with a wide angle lens. To rise above their own time and view things from an eternal or heavenly perspective. Everyone can and usually does critique history quite well when they look back on time, but it's something special and rare for one to do it in real time and space and to do it with grace and truth. It's nearly impossible for people to internally realize their own personal shortcomings or their blind spots and then to recognize it externally in their own time and culture without having adopted it or more often become complacent to it. And above this, it's even more difficult to not only see the changes that need to be made, but then to do the hard work in implementing them, to actually change the culture and the political norm of one's day. To try this and to fail and to get back up and to fail again, time and time again, to get back up and to try over and over again until your life is spent with no promise of success. This is what we'll look at in today's narrative. This is the story of a man's life given to change a worldwide and institutional practice so openly accepted and ingrained in cultures times past that to identify it and capture it would be like trying to separate the air surrounding you from the air inside your lungs. Slavery was normal. It was in the air that all people breathed. Although practiced by all people, In all of history, the very small-framed William Wilberforce determined to change that. By the grace of God, William would spearhead the movement that would change the world forever. Eric Metaxas wrote that William Wilberforce overturned not just European civilization's view of slavery, but its view of almost everything in the human sphere. And that is why it's nearly impossible to do justice to the enormity of his accomplishment. It was nothing less than a fundamental and important shift in human conscience. Let's look into William's life and times and ask God to give us clarity and vision for what he may have for us in our life and our times today. Episode 27, William, starts now. William Wilberforce was born on October 24th, 1759. He was an abnormally small and fragile boy. In fact, he would never grow taller than five foot three. From his childhood, William would suffer from a weak and sickly constitution accompanied with poor eyesight. So with the recent death of his eldest sister and his father, the young and ill-looking eight-year-old William felt even smaller. On top of all of this, William's mother was becoming very sick. With her nearing the verge of death, his relatively comfortable world that he had known was crashing down around him. As a result of losing his father, sister, and now possibly his mother, little William was forced to move from his small town of Hall close to the large city of London with his Aunt Hannah and Uncle William. 
Not only was he moving to a completely new environment with a new school and new caretakers, but his aunt and uncle were Methodists. The new break-off sect of the Church of England started by John Wesley nearly three decades before was largely viewed with contempt. At the time, Methodists were considered to be religious radicals, fanatics who took the gospel of Jesus seriously and passionately in a time where Bibles were only opened on Sunday mornings and where Christian teaching stayed safely within church walls. Both Anglicans and non-religious people frowned upon Methodists and their zeal of God. Later, William wrote about this time in his life saying, It's impossible for you to have any idea of the hatred in which the Methodists were then held. I cannot better explain it to you than by saying that it was more like the account given in Ivanhoe of their persecutions against the Jews than anything else I know. At the time, the prospect for the small and fatherless boy seemed overwhelming. Yet this was the plan of God for William, without which he would never be the same, nor would the world. William's aunt and uncle had a profound influence upon the young boy, and it was precisely because they were not what William's mother had hoped, just nominal Anglicans. Besides being extremely wealthy and befriending many notable people in both the church and state, it was from them that William truly saw the Christian faith put into everyday practice. His aunt and uncle were also friends with some of the most dominant Christian figures of the century, namely John Newton and George Whitfield. Whitfield had traveled to America several times and was on his 13th and last trip to America when William came to live with his aunt and uncle. Whitfield had an impact on William, although indirectly as it is doubtful the two ever met. But young William did meet John Newton, the slave trader turned pastor and author of Amazing Grace. Throughout the years, the two became very close. William regarded Newton as his spiritual father. By the age of 14, William wrote a paper against the slave trade. No doubt, much of his knowledge of it came from Newton's influence. Concerned that William was being overly affected by her Methodist relatives, William's mother and grandfather moved him back to Hall. William had only spent two years with his aunt and uncle, but he had grown to cherish them dearly. He wrote them shortly after leaving London saying, I can never forget you as long as I live. Soon after William reluctantly returned to Hall, to his delight, the headmaster of his school, Joseph Milner, had become a passionate Methodist as well. And so despite being in Hall, mostly surrounded by people who were nothing like his aunt and uncle, William still found encouragement in these formative years while his young faith and biblical worldview were developing. Just three months after the rebels in the United States declared their independence from Britain, the 17-year-old William entered St. John's College in Cambridge in 1776. Typical of young men his age, college for William began with much socializing, singing, card playing, and late night drinking. 
In these years, William was blossoming into a charismatic man. Because he could sing quite well and charm people with his speech, he was always looked on with favor and gladly received by all people. William had the unique ability to captivate those around him with the rare and welcomed capability to be both moral and entertaining. With the recent death of his grandfather, William was left with a large inheritance, which not only allowed William to throw extravagant parties, but would be crucial in his future in politics, where money played a big part in being elected. William's introduction into Parliament came earlier than he probably intended. In college, William became close friends with William Pitt. Pitt, a statesman himself, was the son of the famed Prime Minister William Pitt the Elder. Throughout college, the two young Williams became very close and maintained a devoted friendship that would last for years to come. It was with Pitt's encouragement that William decided to try his hand in politics, getting the idea to represent the city of Hull in the House of Commons. Having just turned 21 and throwing a birthday party sparing no expense, William found himself elected as a member of Parliament, having received more votes than his two challengers combined. And with only a few years, his dear friend advanced in his own career as a politician. The 24-year-old William Pitt would become the youngest prime minister in English history, being appointed by the king on December 18th, 1783. But in the midst of all the limelight and success, William began to question his existence, namely his faith and purpose in life. As he mused on the simple faith he once had as a child, he could not help but notice the dreadful gap between himself and God's holiness. He read the Bible often, leading him to confess in his diary, I believe all the great truths of the Christian religion, but I am not acting as though I did. Wanting to have a real faith like his aunt and uncle, William found himself in a predicament as Methodist and their ilk were still not welcomed in Parliament or high society, both of which William was deeply entwined. It's no wonder then that William spent most of his time reading, praying, and writing in his diary about the looming decision awaiting him. William knew that he wanted to pursue and follow God above all else. This was the great change that William would refer to years later. Having reached out to his close friends and mentors for advice, William laid out the problem that he wanted to be a faithful Christian, but that it was probably incompatible with the life of a politician. His dear friend Pitt acknowledged William's desire to live as a Christian unfettered by social or political constraints, but encouraged him to stay in Parliament. Heartened, William was still not convinced and decided to converse with his old friend John Newton, who was now 60 years old. Newton, like Pitt, advised William that a life of politics and religion can indeed coexist. Soon after speaking to William, Newton wrote a friend, I hope the Lord will make him a blessing both as a Christian and as a statesman. How seldom do these characteristics coincide. 
but they are not incompatible. With that, William had decided to remain in Parliament, resolved to let his faith in God dictate not only his character, but more importantly, the policies that he would soon put forward. It was a, a balance act. With diligence, William now had to let his biblical theology, or those great Christian truths, permeate his personal and political life without losing his influence and charismatic ability to persuade. The 26-year-old was now back in the House of Commons and set before himself two great objects that he would sacrifice the remainder of his life to. The second of the great objects was the reformation of manners. Being in the very heart of London, William had a front row seat to society's many ailments that not only affected the poor, but the rich and everyone in between. Being one of the largest cities of the time, disease, overcrowding, and crime were rampant. The death penalty was unjust and carried out by public hangings and even public burnings at times. Grotesque violence was commonplace. Animal cruelty like dogfights and bull baiting were also displayed in the public square for people's amusement. Alcoholism and addiction were also destroying families, namely among the poor. Many infants were often abandoned and died from neglect as more and more parents left reality for the temporary comfort of alcohol and opium. Poverty also led many to obtain finances through the sex trade. At the time, 25% of unmarried women in London were prostitutes. The average age of those girls was 16, and they were even brothels that provided the services of 14-year-old adolescents. This dark culture in which William lived stood in stark contrast to many of the core truths of Christianity like self-control, sobriety, sexual purity, and compassion. All of these Christian characteristics and callings were based upon the fundamental doctrine of seeing the Imago Dei, the image of God in oneself and in others. As a result, it's no wonder that most people didn't see anything wrong or immoral with the slave trade. It was just another custom of the culture. Thus, William's second great object to change or reform the practices of society naturally led to his first great object, the suppression of the slave trade. While William was laying the groundwork towards both of these goals, it wasn't until he was 28 years old that he famously penned in his diary, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Soon after, William determinedly wrote, So enormous, so dreadful, so irredeemably did this slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I from this time determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. The task in front of William did not just seem overwhelming, it was. For years to come, more than he could ever have thought, William would have to work with all types of people in every possible way to see any amount of success. Thankfully, there were others who shared his same sentiments and, like him, were willing to risk their livelihood. 
from artists, poets, theologians, and preachers to Quakers, sailors, and escaped slaves all participated in various ways. In 1783, four years before William penned his two great objects, the Quakers had already set up the Committee on the Slave Trade, which attracted the attention of Granville Sharp and Thomas Clarkson, two giants in the cause to end slavery. Under their leadership, the Quakers' Committee soon became the more influential Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade. At this same time, in 1787, William helped to fund the Society for the Reformation of Manners. But just as the movement was gaining recognition and William was laying the groundwork to bring a bill to the House of Commons, he became very sick with fevers and exhaustion. In February of 1788, William became so ill with diarrhea and chronic stomach pain that doctors believed that he was nearing death. After aiding him, the physicians concluded that William was suffering from an absolute decay of all his digestive tracts. Fearing the worst, they began to prescribe opium. To their surprise, the opiate, which William would remain on for the remainder of his life, worked better than expected. While he slowly regained his strength, William would be afflicted with stomach infections for the rest of his life and dependent upon the drug, which didn't help his worsening eyesight. Despite this setback, about a year and a half after this, on May 12, 1789, William was back in the House of Commons. Mustering all of his oratory skills, William delivered his first major speech, putting forward 12 propositions for abolition of the slave trade. His discourse would last for three and a half hours through which he graphically explained the horrific conditions of the transatlantic route. Although William made the case that his propositions would be economically beneficial to the country, he did not hide that the primary purpose for abolition should be due to principle, the principles of conscience and of justice, and ultimately the laws of religion and of God. While the oration was noted as being one of William's greatest by many notable people, the members of Parliament remained unconvinced. The debate ended with a decision to hear more evidence. In effect, nothing politically or lawfully changed. And so William, with all those working with him, suffered their first of many legislative defeats. And although William's speech heartened many, as it vocalized a growing movement towards civility, it also raised the ire of others. William had become the most public target of many who opposed abolition. Scottish biographer and lawyer James Boswell turned on William by publishing a blistering rhyme attacking not only his Christian faith, but his small stature, writing, Go Wilberforce with narrow skull. Go home and preach away at whole. Go Wilberforce, be gone for shame, thou dwarf with big resounding name. The Prince of Wales also singled out William, as did the King of England's third son, the Duke of Clarence. William's life was directly threatened by some slave ship captains. Beside this, fanciful rumors were spread around that William was a cruel and violent husband, a man who would often beat his wife. 
Regardless that William wasn't even courting a woman at the time, let alone married, the constant attacks upon him and his cause were always hurtful. For many across the globe, their income was directly or indirectly dependent upon the well-being of the slave trade. Thus, William's leadership for its abolition was unwanted and resisted tooth and nail. Regardless, year after year, William was resolute in putting forth bills to chip away at the institution from every possible angle. And for various reasons, whether it was because the French Revolution was unfolding to the south or the American rebels fighting for independence across the Atlantic, England found itself intertwined among dangerous revolutions, discovering reasons or excuses to hinder any progress for abolition. Meanwhile, that the barbaric and evil slave trade ran as usual was not lost to William. It vexed him greatly. But although precious time was passing away into the darkness of history, William's purpose and resolve was only growing brighter. After 10 years, the tide was beginning to change. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I know I make it look easy and I'm putting out new content faster than people can download it, but the truth of the matter is that making these episodes um, takes time and they're made possible by sponsors. And this episode is sponsored by Community Renewal of Tucson. Uh, Community Renewal is a nonprofit organization in Tucson, Arizona, and it invites the whole body of Christ to take the whole gospel to the whole city in order to demonstrate our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So this episode of William Wilberforce is appropriate for community renewal. William had the Reformation of Manners for London, and community renewal has in the same words the Reformation of Manners for Tucson. Wilberforce brought the lived-out gospel to the most needy. Community renewal does the same. Wilberforce was involved in over 70 different organizations to help alleviate everything from animal cruelty to domestic violence, alcoholism, and much more. And Community Renewal works with, I think, over 30 different collaborative partners and ministries to do much of the same work today. Their mission is holistic and it's for the common good in that all needs and all people matter to God. All people matter to God. That's what we're talking about in this episode. So please um, go check them out at www.community-renewal.com. Pray for them, uh, serve with them in one of their many outreaches, or consider making a donation to them. Any investment made to Community Renewal is an investment to God's kingdom, and it will practically help some of the most needy people of Tucson, Arizona. A welcomed reprieve and a great personal encouragement to William after many years of struggle and legislative losses was meeting his future wife, Barbara Ann Spooner. In April of 1797, the two met at a dinner party in the city of Bath. Only after eight days of getting to know each other, they were engaged and would be married within a month's time. On May 30th of the same year, the 37-year-old William married his 20-year-old bride, Barbara Ann. Although she nearly died from 
typhoid fever early in their marriage, Barbara recovered and would continue raising a family with her husband. And within 10 short years of marriage, William found himself closer than ever to his beautiful wife who shared his same heart for Christian reform while fathering two girls and four young boys. With Barbara's influence and help, William would not only continue to fight for abolition, but many other social changes as well. In 1804, William helped found the British and Foreign Bible Society, as well as the Church Missionary Society. In a very real sense, the more missionaries bringing Christian principles to new people groups could only bolster the movement for abolition. As William had become painfully aware, he would need all the help that he could get. But oddly, that help to advance abolition came through the early death of his best friend and Prime Minister, William Pitt. In January of 1806, the 46-year-old William died from ulcers and chronic stomach problems. He passed away unmarried and without any children. William Grenville, Pitt's cousin and longtime friend of Wilberforce, was then elected as the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Grenville, who had long believed the slave trade was an evil and cruel institution, sensed public sentiment was leaning in the favor of abolition and decided to become personally involved in the battle to help advance it. By now though, nearly after two decades of losses, the 47-year-old William was not as optimistic. But although the small-framed man was even smaller and weaker than he had been as a youth, his spirit and his mind were not. And even though William had endured many political defeats, he was still heartened by the Prime Minister's willingness to engage in the progress for abolition. On January 2, 1807, Grinville personally read the bill before the House of Lords. A month later, on February 5th, the second reading of the bill was given. This ignited a long debate in Parliament that would last throughout the night. Again, Grinville, the new Prime Minister, gave a speech championing William's 20-year effort to abolish the slave trade. And as Wilberforce had done years before, Grinville, likewise, appealed to his fellow members' morality, presenting the case that the bill for abolition should pass because it was both the ethical and virtuous choice for any nation, let alone a Christian one. After many orations were presented throughout the night, in a stunning ending, the votes were finally cast and tallied at 5 o'clock in the morning. The bill for abolition had passed by 46 counts. Undoubtedly, William and all those who were with him were surprised and thrilled. But William's excitement was tempered as the bill would still need to pass one last time in the House of Commons. The date was set three weeks away for February 23rd. William knew that for the bill to succeed in its final reading and vote, God would have to turn the hearts of men, namely the West Indian planters who constantly resisted the bill. But by William's political insight, he astonishingly counted on having their favor. By an act of God's grace, William believed that abolition had now become popular, even to some of those who prospered from it. The 20 years of effort and sacrifice from William and all those working with him had changed the public sentiment, and it seemed now that the writing was on the wall. At last, the day arrived for the bill's third and final reading. 
After commencing, member after member rose to give their speech. As one finished, more eagerly stood to address the parliament. As the hours passed, the momentum seemed to be swelling not only in favor of abolition, but in favor of its champion, William Wilberforce. Sir Samuel Romley, the solicitor general and admirer of William, stirred the crowd to tears by eloquently contrasting Wilberforce as England's peacemaker to Napoleon as France's warlord. Humbled by this show of approval and praise, William began to shed tears of joy. Upon seeing this, the house was filled with great applause and sincere cheers. It was in this atmosphere that the 299 votes were then cast. After a short count, the house would vote 283 in favor of the bill to only 16 against. The battle to end the slave trade was officially won on February 23rd, 1807. Although the slave trade had legally ended in England nearly 20 years after William resolved to end it, slavery itself had not. While terminating the trade would serve as a moral light for other countries to emulate, the question that William would continue to fight for was whether England would go even further and abolish slavery altogether. And so William went from one monumental battle straight into the next. In 1813, William convinced Parliament to permit Christian missionaries into India. Soon after this, he and his friends began an anti-slavery public opinion campaign never seen before in English history. In 1814, they had gathered one million signatures, one-tenth of the population, on 800 petitions, which they delivered to the House of Commons. In 1822, he helped form the Anti-Slavery Society, which officially launched his campaign for the emancipation of slaves the year after. But only two years after this, in 1825, the 66-year-old retired from the House of Commons. His health was suffering more than normal, and once again, his life was in danger from pro-slavery radicals. Although William's workload was reduced, now working from home, he remained involved for emancipation as much as he possibly could. The movement to abolish slavery within Parliament was in other capable hands, and there was much to do behind the scenes. So like the many years before, William would now work tirelessly for the years to come. Knowing that his time was drawing near, the 72-year-old made another anti-slavery speech at a public meeting in April 1833. It would be his last. Surely the old man thought that hoping to abolish slavery entirely was too large of an ambition. A youthful promise made in relative and emotional haste that was probably more foolhardy than courageous. But even if emancipation was not to be seen in his lifetime, William took comfort, especially in his last days, that he had fought for it for nearly half a century. But then something unexpected came on a Friday night, July 26th, and it was great news. A report came that the government had just conceded, granting freedom to all slaves in the British Empire. At last, the Slavery Abolition Act had officially passed. William could hardly believe it. All at once, his life's aim was granted. 
His prayers answered, his struggle was over, and on the following day, William reveled in it. Who can dream what went through the old man's mind that day? To know that the battle for emancipation was really and truly over and won. To know that every slave in the vast reaches of the British Empire would soon have his legal freedom and could never again suffer under such a system. Such a Saturday of joy as Wilberforce lived that day can only come after a thousand Saturdays of battle. But it had come. It was a dream come true. A dream that would indeed console his dying body for a few more days. For on the early hours of Monday morning, July 29, 1833, William Wilberforce exhaled for the last time. Days later, the York Herald newspaper eulogized Wilberforce, writing that towards him, there was probably associated more love and veneration than ever fell to the lot of any civilized individual throughout the civilized globe. His warfare is accomplished. His cause is finished. He kept the faith. Those who regard him merely as a philanthropist in the worldly sense of that abused term know but little of his character. So one of the more difficult aspects of writing short biographies is determining what to leave out. With William Wilberforce, this was particularly hard due to his enormous impact, his extraordinary life story, and and the many historical details wrapped up in it. So I apologize in advance for leaving out so much more that could have been said. With that, we started this episode by remarking how William, and not just William, but other people, almost, if not entirely, people who lived out their Christian faith, they had the ability to see evil within an institution that was practiced all over the world for all time by mostly all people groups. Now, the trans Atlantic triangle slave trade was extraordinarily cruel, but nevertheless, William and other people like him recognized the evil, not just of the slave trade, but of slavery as a whole. And it wasn't just that there was this immorality and evil within slavery, but within many other aspects of the culture as well. It was within extreme poverty, the lack of compassion by the rich towards the needy, It was in prostitution, indecency, greed, violence, and more. And William saw this depravity everywhere. And that's why he was involved in nearly 70 different philanthropic groups working to restore poor families, orphans, juveniles, and more. And I believe it was in his book, Real Christianity, that William noted how men of wealth in London Again, mostly nominal Christians would often walk by young girls on the streets prostituting themselves for food, and the men wouldn't even be bothered by it. And so this was obviously wrong, and William saw that. Because just like slavery, all these other vices that we just listed above, they all degraded and they suppressed the Christian view of anthropology. And what is that? It's that God creates all people in his own image, and therefore all human life is sacred. In fact, one of the many stories that we left out of this narrative was when a slave ship 
named the Zong threw 131 sick slaves overboard in a scam to receive maritime insurance. And as bad as that was, when the incident was taken to court by Granville Sharp and others years later, the judge, William Murray, he likened the murder of these people as if they were nothing more than animals. And again, perhaps drowning in the Atlantic was preferred to the wretched life that awaited them. But the point is that these African men and women were treated as nothing more than a commodity like cotton, rum, horses, whatever. Actually, the judge likened them to horses. All of this is to say that no one can separate William's great legacy from his deep faith in God. Before he really gave his life to God and submitted to Jesus' lordship, he acknowledged, I believe all the great truths of the Christian religion, but I am not acting as though I did. And one of those great truths exclusive to the Christian faith that I think all of William's work and accomplishments were based in was the Christian doctrine commonly referred to as Imago Dei, which is Latin for image of God. It simply but profoundly means that humans have a likeness or similarity to God. It teaches that humans are created with unique abilities and characteristics absent in all other creatures of the earth that mirror the divine nature of God. This doctrine comes from various verses in the Bible, but namely Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So it was a denial of this great Christian truth that led to the wickedness of slavery, among all the other vices as well. And sadly, not much has changed today. Yes, William brought about massive changes for good through the law of men, meaning Britain was the first to legislate morality in regards to slavery. And the benefit was incalculable to millions of people. But legislating morality through the law only goes so far. So today, slavery still exists. It's just mostly exist in the black market behind closed doors. Sadly, the stamping out of the Imago Dei is alive and well today. It is what I like to say, it's in the continual zeitgeist. For example, I recently watched an interview about Ghislaine Maxwell. She was the extremely wealthy socialite who was Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend and solicited underage girls to pleasure the billionaire's sexual desires. And she was just recently in in June of 2022 charged with child sex trafficking and other offenses. And she was sentenced uh, in a New York court to 20 years of imprisonment. But what was interesting was a testimony that one of her old friends shared when the friend asked Ghislaine who exactly were the girls she was procuring for Jeffrey Galen responded, quote, these girls are nothing. They're trash. Sadly, that sentiment, although difficult to hear and rarely ever said, is often believed and actively acted upon. 
The distance between treating others as those who were created in the image of God and treating others as just a highly evolved animal is vast. The belief in the sanctity of life that all people are image bearers of God is what makes the logical implications and conclusions of the theory of evolution so dangerous. Being convicted of Imago Dei is why Christians should abhor abortion as not just wrong, but evil. The Imago Dei affects every aspect of life from the moment of conception to the moment of death and thus everything in between. When we forget this great Christian truth, as Wilberforce would call it, we actually lose what it means to be a human. And when we lose our own humanity or our identity as an image bearer of God, we will inevitably treat others around us far less than what Christ calls us to. John Calvin wrote this, we should not regard what a man is and what he deserves but we should go higher that it is God who has placed us in this world for such a purpose that we should be united and joined together. He has impressed his image in us and has given us a common nature, which should incite us to providing one for the other. The man who wishes to exempt himself from providing for his neighbors should face himself and declare that he no longer wishes to be a man. For as long as we are human creatures, we must contemplate as in a mirror our face in those who are poor, despised, exhausted, and who groan under their burdens. So William Wilberforce understood this. He contemplated as in a mirror his face in those of the slaves. In the end, Christians like William, must view all people as being made in the image of God. While William's lot in life was unique, like his character, his family, his friends, his wealth and position in Parliament, his desire to rid the world of vice and immorality should not be one of them. That aim and calling should be common among all those who claim Christ as their Lord and believe in the great Christian doctrine of Imago Dei. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Imago Dei. William not only showed us what a true belief in this can look like, but what it must look like for God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. My prayer is that we would not only reflect his image in ourselves, which I think must come first, but we would help to restore it in others. Sadly, there are many opportunities for us to do this today. Are we willing to engage in them? Hey, thanks again for listening. I hope you found this podcast to be engaging, encouraging, and enlightening. If you did, please uh, write a review and rate it. It always puts the podcast out to more people. If you know someone who you think would benefit from this episode or this podcast, please share it with them. Uh, you can do that on your phone or go to our website at salvationandstuff.com or um, salvationandstuffblog.com. Also, if you want to get our blog and promotions to free Salvation and Stuff stuff, 
then uh, email me at mdc at 1791.com, uh, which is on our website. And we can add you to a very uh, special and very small list. It's almost like you're a VIP. That's how small our list is. But we would uh, put you on that list and give you some uh, monthly newsletters. Thanks again. Love you and appreciate you all. See you next time.